Hello, and welcome to Cruising Through History. My name is Xander. I am sitting down with the wonderful Scott Cruz. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Scott, where are we cruising through today? Well, Xander, today I thought I'd talk about the birth of Frankenstein. Okay, we're talking Frankenstein. We're a bit late for Halloween, but <laughs> yes. it's gonna be it's gonna be nice. So let's see. Let's talk about well, it. Well, what I what I what I mean by that is, how did this whole story come to fruition? How did it come to light, and why is it so iconic? You know, two hundred and something years after it was written. Yeah, and I think it's because of all the different subjects that she kind of touches on in the book. I mean, we always have discussions even today well probably more so today than ever you know the limits of science or what can science do and you know if you can do it should you do it Mm -hmm. those kinds of questions and and you said she this is mary shelley's frankenstein yes mary shelley's frankenstein uh was written uh published in 1818 Uh, she was married at the time to percy shelley the british poet from the romantic movement i think that's where they were from the whole idea started when they were on a journey in 1816. They went to see Lord Byron, another British poet, in Lake Geneva in Switzerland and uh, the Villa Diodati. And what was interesting about that summer, it was the summer of 1816. It was called the 1816 is always known as the year without a summer because in 1815, Mount Tambora in Indonesia had erupted. And so... It sent all that ash into the air, and it affected the weather patterns for the next year. So you can picture this. They're, they go to Lake Geneva in June. You're picturing sunny and beautiful. Well, they're stuck inside, and it's raining constantly. It's cloudy. It's overcast. Just it's, it's so funny to me how many parallels there are here, like how her story started, and then you think of the movie and how it's always storming and everything. But anyway. It's almost too good to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were sitting around one night, and Lloyd Byron said they were reading a bunch of uh, ghost German ghost stories that had been translated into French. And they thought, hey, let's, let's all have a contest to see who can write a ghost story or a horror story, if you will. And actually, she didn't think of the idea immediately. Uh, it took a few days for her to come up with it. And there were other things going on in the culture at the time. Remember, whenever we talk about the 19th century, and we probably saw this a little bit spiritualism. You have these advancements in science, but you still have these other things that are the occultish kind of things that are sort of running side by side with it. And this was the early 19th century. So there were all kinds of arguments going on then about um, you know, reanimating the dead and things of that nature. And these all sort of worked her, their way into her story. And I also find it interesting that she described coming up with the story as being in a waking dream. She couldn't sleep one night. And she pictured this whole story, this uh, making, um, and they had had a conversation earlier in the evening about reanimating and bringing people back to life and Mm -hmm. stuff. And so she pictured this whole thing in this waking dream, as she called it, and then started writing it. And actually, she was just going to write a short story. It was Percy Shelley who said, Oh, no, you should make this a novel. So that's how that came about. And so this is um, not just any ordinary novel, though. This is, when we're talking about 
Frankenstein, I think a lot of us in literature and writers, we often attribute it as one of the first horror books, yes. period. Yes. Like, no one else, that was the start. And I know a lot of people um, attribute um, like things like uh, Tales of Cthulhu as mm-hmm. original horror, but really, right. it's further back with... Um, with Mary, Mary, Mary Shelley, and, and what's really interesting about this little get together they had in Lake Geneva, mm-hmm. what else? The other thing that came out of this was John Polidori, who's sort of the forgotten person. Whenever they talk about this grand meeting, there's actually been a movie made about it too. Um, he wrote a vampire story, which sort of became this template. He published it in 1819. It was called The Vampire with a Y, mm-hmm. and, and it was based on these Balkans these stories they heard as they traveled through the Balkans about vampires, him and Lord Byron. And so you almost had Frankenstein came out of that. And then this sort of the, the, the template for the vampire, you know, the romantic vampire, that kind of thing came out of that too, which I just find fairly amazing that these two stories sort of came out of this session. That it, they was, had. it was almost like the first informal conference, like horror conference. Cause you think um, Frankenstein right. and really the Frankenstein story or the the um, the type of story that it is mm-hmm. um, that type of story of when does science go too far um, right that right. has been repeated in <laughs> right. science fiction yes. and horror you kind of that's a very merged genre genres earlier we talk about sci-fi and fantasy right. a lot but really sci-fi and horror have a lot of history together right you see that as kind of a repeating thing just like the vampire ones when we think mm-hmm. vampires that has been recurring throughout stories and history right and, and even if we look at the movie which i'll talk about a little bit later but um colin clive who played for some reason in the movie they called him henry frankenstein instead of victor which mary had called him victor and whenever you think of a mad scientist you think of him mm-hmm. you think of, it's alive you know when he did that in uh, bride of frankenstein you know yeah it's iconic yep it's very iconic, and, and there are a lot of things about Frankenstein that are iconic. What happens is, in the popular imagination, even myself when I was doing research for this, I find myself thinking of the movie instead of the book, and I've read the book, mm-hmm. but I, I kept constantly thinking of Boris Karloff when, I, when, when if you read Mary Shelley's book, it's nothing like the movie. Um, in fact, her creature, if you will, actually gains the power to speak. He reads... He talks this normally. When you read the book, he's got normal dialogue. So he learns all this. And so, um, but there was an argument, there was a, there was a discussion going on at the time, and it has to do with something called galvanism, which was sort of the theory that you could reanimate things with electricity. Okay. And there were two people that were involved in this. Alessandro Volta, of course we know that from Volt, and Luigi Galvani, which we get the name from. But they differed in their... Whereas Volta thought, well, you know, you can use this to sort of make in, inanimate, you know, material move. Mm-hmm. Volta, I mean, I mean, um, uh, Gal- Galvani, he thought that you could actually bring people to because there was the the uh, some sort of uh, the, the fluid of life or something. You know, they had all these sort of. And what's funny is how similar some of the discussion is to when we talked about alchemism, mm-hmm. and that sort of plays a role in this too. Uh, the knowledge of it. And so you had these two, this debate going on about, and, and they would do these experiments where, you know, they would take like a dead frog and look, we, we put this, you know, we, we got, we shot it with this electricity and started moving. 
Well, that's just it's just moving. It's not alive. Yeah, that's say. just muscles contracting in response to electrical stimuli. You know why shock can help restart a heart or something like right, that. Right, right. So, so I, in fact, they had discussed this at the um, with their group. You know, they just had the, they talked about galvanism and occult and all this stuff, and I think it all sort of poured into this stew. And I keep thinking to myself, my God, she was eighteen when she started writing this book. I mean, I have a niece who's 16. I can't even imagine her writing a book like Frankenstein. That's no, that's no burn on her. It's just that it's, it's hard for me to imagine it. Here was a teenager who already had lost a child, mm-hmm. and I think some of that heartbreak went into this book too. And you, you know, there, there's a tie with – there's a few ties in with horror as a genre where um, horror is usually tied to some form of tragedy or loss of something. Right. And then also – those deep unsettling emotions that someone feels. And that actually makes a lot of sense to be 18, have lost a child, because right. um, teens feel a lot of strong emotions. Um, yes. And to have something that tragic happen, right? where now you're creating a story of birthing, but it's, it's you know, a monster goes awry, of some sort yes. goes awry. Yes. That makes a lot of sense to me as someone, you know, more familiar with horror as a genre. Right. There's an annotated version of the Frankenstein story, and the, one of the forewords is written by uh, Guillermo del Toro, I believe. Okay. Yeah. And um, he said that. He said a lot of those things you said, like you can't believe this was written by a teenager, but remember, teenagers have these roiling feelings. Yes, I know it was different being 18 and, you know, 18, 16 than it was now. Mm-hmm. But still, you still have those feelings. And the thing about Mary Shelley is not only did she lose her first child that young, but she lost all her children at, at a young, when they were at a young age. And even her, her husband, Percy Shelley, died fairly young in a, in a boating accident in, off the coast of Italy. So it just seems like when she wrote this story, there were all, and, and her, her personal life was kind of embroiled, too, with all this with Percy Shelley and Lloyd Byron and her sister, and you know there were all these things going on too. So I think um, it's interesting though that she kind of she must have known the debates that were going on because it kind of comes out in the story. Mm-hmm. Now the one thing about her story is it's interesting is even though she was familiar with galvanism and the Victor Frankenstein doesn't use electricity in the story to reanimate. And I kind of thought, wait, no, I thought he flew the kite. No, no, again. That's the movie. James Whale put that in his movie. In his, it's, it's sort of ambiguous what brought the creature to life. In the story, Frankenstein claims that he had this, he had found this force that he could use to reanimate stuff. So it's funny because, again, the electricity part. And I, I want to reiterate because reiterate, this, is, this is something that comes up a lot. Frankenstein is the scientist in the book, right? Yes. Not the monster. Not the monster, yes, exactly. It's Frankenstein's monster. Yes. It's separate. But it's interesting, like you mentioned, it's interesting that it's not electricity in the books. But in the books, is how the monster is revived or um, given life really the important part? Right, exactly. In fact, and I think that's why maybe it's ambiguous, because maybe she thought it wasn't really that important. Mm Mm-hmm. And it took him like two years to fashion this whole thing, and then, but then he rejects his creation, and he really rejects it by not giving him a name. Just like you just said, we call it the monster, or he called it wretch or demon, or you know, he had all these phrases for it. None of them good. Mm-hmm. 
But then you show, I think really what she shows is the irresponsibility of, of Dr. Frankenstein when he sort of says, okay, I'm abandoning you to the wild to go, go do what you will. And I mean, doesn't quite say that, but you're abandoning your creation. Now he's got to fend for himself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and in the book you see him evolve and, and learn to read and speak to the point where it almost gets a little funny because, you know, he's reading Paradise Lost by John Milton, which was actually an influence for Mary Shelley because he calls himself a fallen angel, you know, Lucifer, which is because there's this good and evil, you know. And so he, he, he empathizes with the character of Satan in Paradise Lost in the book, and I think that was because he's been rejected. You know, he's, 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 so he's showing this, and so there's all these different currents going on with the monster. But the thing about the movie is even though the monster doesn't quite evolve like it does in the book with Boris Karloff, I think Boris Karloff did a great job of bringing humanity to the character, especially when you watch The Bride of Frankenstein. You really see that. He, he was rejected once again by something that was built specifically <laughs> towards him, and then he destroys the whole castle at the end. I, I, I know it's not really spoiler alert since the movie came out in 1935, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I'd say <laughs> I think we're safe from spoilers. <laughs> so... But, yeah, so the whole thing about the story coming together is interesting, especially with the scientists. And, and in the book, she actually has Victor being in, being influenced by three alchemists now. We've talked about alchemy before mm-hmm. in these podcasts. And, and Paracelsus, which I think we talked about when we talked about alchemy, one of his things was, well, we can... I can just grow life. We don't, you know, we don't need, we can just grow life in a jar. I know I'm kind of rolling my eyes a little bit, but they thought they could create what was called a homunculus, which is a, like a, a baby, if you will. Yes. And they thought they could actually grow it. I know this sounds totally absurd when I say it, but it's interesting that she had Victor being influenced by alchemists. So she must mm-hmm. have known that sort of that, angle of it too yeah and for our full metal alchemist fans it's not going to be a surprise whatsoever that that's uh part because that is um in that show in particular alchemy leading to life and alchemy involving life is like one of the forbidden things um yes and this in um the book frankenstein what um victor is doing or trying to do is kind of looked down upon like it's not yes it's a risky business uh to say the least and right i read the first two pages so i got that <laughs> part at least well when you watch the movie there's there actually was a movie with kenneth branagh called mary shelley's frankenstein mm-hmm. which is more like the book okay but you see that his his professors at his medical school are saying those guys were you know paracelsus these are these are discredited charlatans we don't study them anymore that's forbidden knowledge Mm -hmm. which almost made it more attractive i mean of course whatever we seem to forbid people seem to want to do yeah and you see this really in the movie where he he mentions paracelsus in the movie and it's kind of funny that like you said it was forbidden knowledge and i think by that time yeah the medical community really looked down upon trying to reanimate corpses Mm -hmm. but yet somehow when they were doing these electrical experiments no one had any problems with hauling out convicted or condemned criminals who had been executed and doing electrical experiments on their corpse. Yeah. In fact, it happened after the book was published later in 1818, a doctor, a doctor, I don't know how to say his last name is U-R-E. He was Scottish. Mm -hmm. He was doing these electrical experiments on a cadaver and it would move. 
And so he would hook, you know, he would hook it up to like the spinal column and these different nerves. And actually some of the people who were at the thing fainted and some ran out of the room because at one point the corpse actually held its arm up like it was pointing its finger at somebody. Uh-huh. And so people thought, oh, no, it's come to life. You've, what have you done, you monster? You know, all this craziness. But then as soon as you took all the electricity out, he was still dead. Yeah. But there's one thing. I, I know this is sort of a little sidetrack, but there's one thing that this doctor did. He thought they realized that when you applied electricity directly to the heart, it wouldn't work. So he said, you know what it is? You, maybe you just have to run it up a t- on the skin and run these up and, and on the nerves instead of the actual heart. But he never went through with the experiment. And the whole time reading it going, isn't that what a defibrillator does? And sure enough, if he would have went through with this experiment, it would have been like the first instance because he probably would have been right. Mm-hmm. I just found that interesting that was that, you know, life imitating art thing. And was it that going on after that? And, but there's always been speculation on why Frankenstein, why the name? Yeah. And so, of course, everything, it seems like so many things involved in this are debated and even today. Um, some have suggested that there was a castle, Frank, Frankenstein Castle, near a village in Germany that they had stopped at when they were going through Europe where they ended up in Switzerland. Uh, Mary's journals never mention this castle, but apparently about 200 years earlier, an alchemist had been at this castle. Of course. And he was, of course, had the elixir of life, apparently had some kind of something. His last name was Dipple, so it was called Dipple's Oil. I know it's kind of a funny name. So they, he's, and, he, and he referred to it as his elixir of life. He was a real person. And so everyone has speculated, did she get somehow from villagers hear this old story and get this idea from there? But unfortunately, uh, local researchers have never really found a connection. And they also state that there's other places in Germany called Frankenstein. She may have just saw the name and thought, oh, that's kind of a nice name. Um, and as you know, as another writer, yeah, that's probably it. <laughs> um, I mean, it's one of those things that it's usually simpler than the the thought than the speculation, right? Um, right. So, how it, um, how did people respond to this book? Well, when it, came out? when it was first published, she published it anonymously. Okay, and that was in eighteen eighteen. Now there were two reasons, I believe. One was she was the daughter of two very famous parents at the time, William Godwin and Mary Wollstonecraft, who was sort of an early suffragist feminist, if you will. Okay. And Mary Wollstonecraft died 11 days after Mary was born. That's why, and she always called Mary Wollstonecraft uh, Shelley. And William Godwin remarried, so of course she had a stepmother, and they didn't get, you know, it's like the classic story. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I think she was also afraid that people wouldn't think a woman could write such a story. Which, that's act very fair. Well, it is yeah. from one of the reviews, and I'll probably read the quote from it <laughs> if I can find it. Um, it wasn't until 1821 in the French translation that her name somehow appeared on the front. Now, the other debate has been raging for years, and it's kind of gone to bed but not quite, is how much did Percy Shelley write of this? Because Percy Shelley, when he was a, a college student, he was interested in the occult. He was also interested in science, so he knew a lot of this stuff. And and maybe he contributed. He may have. I mean, it's, it's perfectly natural. He may have said, suggested adding things or whatever, but did he actually write it? The consensus now is no. He probably contributed something in the editing. Yeah. 
but the idea and the actual writing of the the majority of the book was her. Yeah, I mean, as much as he was, he's a writer. He was mostly a poet, wasn't that right? Yes. So I mean, poetry versus um, a story with a narrative, especially in that genre, is a well, it's a kind of a new genre at that time. Right, and, but, and, and yeah. actually, some have called it the first science fiction because of the Mad mm. Scientist and and the reanimation, and that's more horror, I think, but. I mean, I guess that's splitting hairs between the two genres. I mean, they are, there's a connection is undoubtable there. There's a connection between that sci-fi and that right. horror. And it's interesting when you mentioned about the the emotion she may have been feeling at the time that sort of came out in this horror. Well, we talked about, and I'm, I, it's funny how so many things that I discovered in this tie back to some of the other things we've done. When we talked about horror during World War One. I, I mean, James Whale, I mean, he, did Frankenstein movie? I mean, he and and how his war his his war experience affected him and others, and, and we saw that in German expressionism and whatnot. Mm-hmm. There's almost all this stuff still going on in 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 Frankenstein, and you see that. But here here was the review from one of the places. Once they found out it was Mary Shelley. Okay. So this is I can't remember where it came from, but it, so it says, "quote The writer of it is we understand a female." This is an aggravation of that which is the prevailing fault of the novel. But if our but if our authoress can forget the gentleness of her sex, it is no reason why we should, and we shall therefore dismiss the novel without further comment. So that's why she probably wanted to do it anonymously. So they're like, uh, that's an insult to have her have written it. But at the same time, we should probably dismiss it because she did too. Like her right. Her and then it's funny to me because they were doing two things. They were saying, first of all, they're saying, well, we're just going to dismiss your work because you're a female. Mm-hmm. And then the other hand, they were saying, well, you didn't write it anyway. Percy Shelley wrote most of it. So there's like, it's, it, they both contradict each other. My, yeah. In my view, I could be wrong, but it seems that. But what's, what happened, though, is it even though the reviewers were kind of critical of it, not all of them were. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they couldn't seem to get past the fact that this was a woman writing it. It took off in popularity. And what's interesting about, there's a book called Frankenstein, A Cultural History, which explains how all this happened. It immediately was adapted for the stage. So you had all these melodramas. And, and again, we've talked about 19th century melodramas in the theater in our podcast. So it, it became a melodrama. So when Whale made his movie, it's not like the first time it was ever in some kind of, the first film of Frankenstein was 1910. Thomas Edison did a silent movie of, of Frankenstein. He looks more like Big Bird in it for some reason. I, I kept getting that impression when I was looking at the photographs from the movie. But James Whale, I think, is the one who really implanted it in our popular consciousness. Yeah, and horror, it, it's interesting. Horror has a very particular effect on people's minds. Um, there's yeah. a lot of people are like, why do you, why do you read or watch that? Um, right. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a question about the book itself. How, um, is it, is this a bloody story? Like it's gory or things like that? Not really. Not that I thought. That's what I, okay. So I, I asked that, um, we've had a conversation with other writers when it comes to horror and, you know, we think of modern horror right. and its effects on people, and right. we see, you know, a lot of blood, gore, jump yes. scare kind of things. Mm-hmm. And Frankenstein is not that whatsoever. Right. And I don't even know if she intended it like that. I think yeah. what she wanted to show you was that this creature, that they, you'd call it a creature, 
could evolve and could become more human almost than Victor mm-hmm. at the end. And so you're, that's a good question because or that's a good point. Yeah, and the the point I was making with those the other writers in that was that horror is really meant about disturbing, um, mm-hmm. which this with the conversation on um, creating life, a creature that can evolve and become more human-like but still faces that rejection, it's disturbing to the minds, but that right. disruption is, for some reason, very attractive to us as people. And, and as a... You know, as he evolved, he felt the rejection. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like he was just sort of running around the, you know, loose in the village or something. Even though he does commit a murder in the, actually a couple of them in mm-hmm. the book, uh, but he does feel his rejection. Yeah, and that that makes a lot of drama. Um, yes, to be both like loved as whoa this thing, but rejected at the same time. Like right, and even though Whale's adaptation is very different than, well, he probably didn't write it, but. Um, is very different than Mary Shelley's book. I think he captured a little of that too. Yeah. I mean, the movie's only like 70 minutes long, so you can only do so much. But I'm always happy that those old monster movies were always shot in black and white. I mean, I knew they wouldn't be in color because there wasn't Mm -hmm. color then. I think it makes, and we talked about shadows and all that when we were talking about expressionism, it makes the whole thing, because in Frankenstein, the first thing you see is a shadow on the the wall. Mm -hmm. And it's just those little things. Now, maybe you know, they don't scare us like we jump out of our seat and fall down or something. But to me, it's a different type of, of horror. Yeah, it's something... It's a gothic type of thing. It's like something's wrong here. Yes. Um, and that, that creeping wrongness that right. um, gets a response from people. So I can see it you know, making plays as well. You know, Plays generally aren't... Um, or like stage plays... Right. They're not usually like high tech things, so they have to kind of make do with what you got, right? Um, right. And use the um, suspension of disbelief of the audience mm-hmm. to create something which horror is perfect for, because it's right. You have to believe, like in Mary Shelley's, something put this to life that wasn't like electricity, right? Like it had to happen. And you just kind of be like, okay, we're gonna go with it, and it makes perfect theater, right? Yeah, and so. Right. In the 19th century, as we know, was sort of they would immediately adopt things, especially in London. If something was in the headlines, they would make a play out of it mm-hmm. just so they could you know, keep people coming in. No, no sheep were thrown on stage or carcasses. I, I'm going way back when to one of our first first couple of podcasts about <laughs> the Shakespeare riots. But but no, I mean, it was a way, I think, of communicating to the masses. And that's why I think it gained in popularity with people. Maybe critics didn't like it all that much. I think critic, a lot of critics had too much problem with the fact that it was a woman who wrote it mm-hmm. that clouded their judgment or their objectivity, shall we say, in reviewing the, the work. Yeah. Um, and I think when we think of Frankenstein now, we think of the iconic flat head. And there's even a funny story about that. There's all these coincidences here. Not that I'm... You know, but so Mary Shelley thought of Frankenstein in, in what she called a waking dream. Mm-hmm. Well, Jack Pierce, who was the makeup artist at Universal Studios, who came up with the flat head and the bolts, or the the flat head and the makeup, his daughter had had a dream, and she drew this for him and said, he should look like this. So I'm thinking, so both incarnations of Frankenstein that we came familiar with, we don't think really Peter Cushing, who played him later, both incarnations of Frankenstein were kind of done from a dream. Now, how true all these stories are. I don't know, but it just makes kind of a good story. Yeah, it, it really kind of wraps things up. Um, and 
how much influence and kind of the idea that there's some form of connection you know some metaphysical connection between Shelley and the daughter in this sense that could <laughs> right. create this being to be viewed by the public right and um I always think of we always think of Colin Clive. He died like when he was thirty seven, so he really wasn't in a lot of stuff. He played the mad scientist. But then we think of Elsa Lanchester. I mean, she was only in Bride of Frankenstein for like five minutes, ten minutes, because she was at the beginning and at the end. And think how iconic the Bride of Frankenstein is. And she really as appearing like that, she was only in the film for like the last five minutes. <laughs> yeah. And so nowadays nowadays, I guess I mean, we see Frankenstein more in popular culture and you know, it's adapted over and over. Um, but it's Mary Shelley seems to get the recognition that she Yeah, deserves. she gets it now. Mm-hmm. I mean, people really... And she did write other things. I just think this just... I mean, of course it's going to overshadow oh, yeah. anything else she ever wrote, only because I think of everything that came out of it. It really... And you think about it, it really caught... It's sort of like Bram Stoker's Dracula. It really caught something. You mm-hmm. know, and people, because Bram Stoker's Dracula almost had a similar trajectory. Um, so, hey, maybe we'll talk about that in another time. <laughs> yeah, and you know, this this is a good one. You picked another topic that is like, oh, cool, literature, my thing. But right. Scott, where are we going to go to next time? Well, this is going to be kind of a left turn a little bit, but I'm going to talk about the Opium Wars. Ooh, that is extremely interesting. I've I failed that section in history, so I'm looking forward to that for next time. Oh, hey, Scott, did you know that listeners can actually contact us now? They can. How can they do that? Yeah, they can just email us at um, historycruise at mykpl.info. Great. Also, like and subscribe on any of the platforms you find this podcast.